It was the 90s. The bare naked ladies could, you know, sell hundreds of thousands of copies of an independent cassette. I don't get it. a podcast about contemporary dance in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And also things that come through Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Yeah, anything we can see that's uh, dance-related, basically, um, we will do so and then talk about on this tiny podcast. Or in some cases, interview about, like like this week. Yeah, this is a pretty special week. We haven't run a lot of interviews before, but this one we just couldn't really give up the chance when we heard she was in town. Right. Um, and she, in this case, is, is Peggy Baker, uh, one of Canada's most uh, acclaimed dancers, a Governor General uh, Award winner, Governor's General, Governor General's Award winner, <laughs> yes, uh, Order works. of Canada member, much easier to say, um, and just an uh, incredible contemporary dancer who has a, a long, a long history of dance in this country and abroad and, and a lot of acclaim behind her. Yeah. And she's in Edmonton um, for the next couple of weeks or has been here for a little while already. <laughs> and she's working with um, our local collective, the Good Women Dance. Yeah. Uh, not only them, but Orcasis Dance, which is sort of a, a dance school in town that later on in January or February is celebrating its 50th year. Um, and so so uh, Peggy was in town choreographing two works onto those different groups. And uh, and while she was here, uh, I caught up with her at the uh, Sugar Swing Ballroom just off White Avenue. And we uh, we sat down and had a chat about all sorts of things related to dance and, and her career in it while, uh, while she was here in town. That's very cool, Paul. Can I ask, like, what she was like? Because I've never met Peggy Baker, okay. and I totally wanted to. Yeah, uh, she she was great. She was very forthcoming, and uh, uh, I, I saw one of her performances while she was in town. Um, she's the armsiest dancer I've ever seen. Just she these in, these incredible arms that are that are so beautiful and 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 amazing to watch. She is well known for her physique. She's quite tall. Yes, yeah, yes, and um, long, long arm, long limbed. Yeah. Uh, and she has a great laugh. She has a really great laugh, which I think is in this recording somewhere. But before we get to that, I have to make a correction about something I said in the recording. Um, the last question I ask uh, Peggy Baker, uh, I attribute to uh, Graham Greene, who was an, uh, an English novelist. Um, that was incorrect. I meant Graham Gibson, who was a, a Canadian novelist and also um, someone who would do a lot of interviews with authors uh, in the 70s and 80s. So that's a thing. That's a thing I did. Um, so it's incorrect in the, the recording, but it's correct for you now. I meant Graham Gibson, not Graham Greene. All right, well, let's listen to see what you and Peggy talked about. Do you have a, a first memory of dancing when you think back? Um, well, I came to dancing very naturally, and I think I did my first dancing in my family's living room to records that were playing on the hi-fi, and it just seemed like the perfectly natural thing to do. I took dance lessons when I was a child, mostly tap dancing, and so I feel like well, I honestly feel like I've been dancing for my whole life, even though a lot of it was very unstructured and it was just uh, very spontaneous. I always thought of myself as someone who danced, whether I really literally thought that was a dancer. But in my childhood, I, I was in a choir. I took piano lessons. I liked to, I took art lessons. I loved reading. I liked dancing. It was one of many, many things that I did 
And it was almost surprising to me when it emerged as the central focus of my life. But at a certain point, it it was uh, I I I needed to set everything else aside because it started to become a real driving force for me. And that was right at the end of high school, I would say. Great. Do you do you think of yourself differently when you're dancing? Hmm. I guess I do. Now that you ask that question, I mean, it's it's a different language than the than the. Um, it's a different f- physical life and a different way of communicating and a different way of inhabiting my person. So I yes, and I've never really thought of that before. Um, I'm the person I am, but I'm that person dancing, and that's a different aspect of my of my character, I guess. Sure, and you said it came very naturally to you, even from right. an early age movement right. and, and that sort of thing. Right. I'm very connected to um, many aspects of myself when I'm dancing, and in a lot of other areas of my life, um, it's more compartmentalized or something. Like when I'm dancing, I'm I'm very connected to my intuition, to my intellect, to my imagination, to my memory, to my physical life, to my awareness of experience, to my relationship to the space around me. And those things are less vivid or aren't always accessible to me at different, like if I'm cooking dinner or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> right, but when yeah. you're dancing, those those parts are yes. all, all at work. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great. I mean, um, you've been dancing professionally since your, your early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, how, has, how has dance changed over, over the years and oh, over your goodness. career? Oh, my gosh. Dance, the contemporary dance scene has, it's completely transformed. Like, I st- started dancing professionally 40 years ago, literally, like in the fall of, basically the fall of 1974. And that was... Uh, the way dancers trained then and the kind of work they performed and the role they took. Like dancers were just dancers then. They were told what to do. They were taught steps that were created by the choreographer on their own body and you performed those steps and they were very discreet dances that were repeated the very same as they were performed. And this is not at all the way the dance world goes. And they were all danced to music, basically. Um, now... I think people use the term dance artist a lot because most dancers are also now teachers, creators, they're improvisers, they're performers in one another's works. Um, so that the roles are much more fluid now. And also, when I was first dancing, uh, dance training was based on dance techniques that had been developed in the first half and then toward the middle of the 20th century. And those are those techniques are no longer the primary um, vehicle for learning how to dance. They're very peripheral now. So um, d- dancers are experiencing a much broader range of um, styles and approaches in their dance life and social dancing, <clears throat> pardon me, mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, social dancing. So um, even like, I don't know, whatever the, the language is now for break dancing and mm-hmm. hip hop and uh, 
those, the influence of that like vernacular of self-taught and very like unique um, moves that people perfect on their own and, uh, and contact improvisation and all the partnering that's come out of that and releasing techniques and um, there's a lot, it, improvisation drives a lot more of the dance world and also very individuated performers. Um, in a way, it's a little bit more like the music scene where different musicians, um, you know, when they get together to, to play with, you know, with this group of people in this band, and that's what a certain character, and then they work with other people, mm -hmm. and it's, um, and people are moving around much more, and, but aesthetically it looks really different also. Was there something you, you feel you can point to that sort of um, triggered that change or, or how that, that sort of shift from very rigid um, instruction to, to a more fluid approach sort of happened over, over the course of, of time? Well, I think it's partly there was a, something that people refer to as the dance boom in the 1980s. And there were, I, I happened to be living in New York City at that time, and there were hundreds of dance companies. There were thousands of dancers so just the sheer numbers of people, and there were companies like just popping up like mushrooms. Like the, um, that, that was the moment when many people felt like, uh, you know, they'd gone to a university dance program where they'd studied composition, and they're like, I'm going to make a dance. I don't, I've been, I've, so people had a broader kind of training, and it was, it was a time of tremendous freedom because, um, a lot of cities had a lot of cheap space mm -hmm. and it wasn't people didn't have just the arduous overhead of like rent and it was easy you could get by and you could put your money and your time toward making your art and it's really really hard to do that now because everything is just so expensive real estate more than anything mm -hmm. else so the dance world in new york city is shrinking because just to rent studio space, it, it's hundreds of dollars every day. Um, so I think it was just the sheer numbers of people and it was sort of the baby boom, people who thought, oh, we'll do, we can do anything we want. And, um, and then it's just spun out and out and out from that. And people made some tremendous um, innovations about approaches to dance. Right. At that time, what were, what were you doing in dance? What was sort of your approach to that, that freedom? Um, that was suddenly available and pre, uh, pre-evolent? Well, you know, I, I think I was not in the vanguard of that at all. Like, I was still um, a product of my own training. <laughs> and so I was in a much more traditional company. I was in the Lar Lubavitch company, and it was a very, um, at, the, at the moment, it was a very exciting dance company in New York City, and we toured a huge amount. So for me, the you know, what really happened to me during that time was that I got to see the world through through my dancing because we literally traveled the globe. And um, so whereas today, like the touring circuits are just completely shrunk down, but there's a huge amount of creative work. At that time, there was a huge amount of uh, potential for performing in the far reaches of the world. So that's more, um, I mean, I'm, st I still represent an older generation and these things are all kind of like the different, I don't know, strata or something like that. And not in a hierarchical way, but just we're all products of our time. And I, I'm 
I'm mostly watching the changes in the dance world now, just with tremendous appreciation and awe. But I can't, I still have to live out who I am in 2014. And that's a very, very different dancer and person than I was 30 years ago. But it's, uh, it's still, it's an outcome from my own, I guess, sources. Sure. So, so over the the time that you've been dancing as well, you've noticed changes in how you approach dance and, and sort of the different oh, areas of your own. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the biggest ones for me was um, anatomy training because that was never a part of dance training um, before my generation, and and just the real exploration of the actual body became a big preoccupation for many people in my generation. It absolutely was for me, and so. I think it the outcome of that was training that's much um, sounder. Uh, people can dance for much longer because the training isn't despite your body. It's really now it's through your body. You're not trying to change your body. You're wanting to um, develop the body that you have. So that's a big, big um, flip. Great. Yeah. Can you tell me maybe a little bit about some of the injury you've come across as a, as a dancer? <laughs> I mean, if it, the, as much as you want to get That it. is such a long list. But I, I, I laughed the other day because there's a musician who's been playing for these classes and he put his back out a, a little bit early in the week doing I don't know what. But mm-hmm. he said so we had a bit of a back spasm. And he said to me, um, have you ever had a back spasm? And I, I've had a 40-year dance, you know, professional dancer. Right, so right. I said, my back has been in spasm more times than I could ever count. I mean, uh, the list for me is it's extremely long, and it's partly because I maybe I came to very serious training a little bit late, and I was like really like um, super kind of aggressive in my training, and some of it wasn't the greatest training in the world, and then you have accidents mm-hmm. in the studio where you slip and fall or on an icy sidewalk. I mean, it can come from all kinds of things or overuse or whatever it is, but just the long and short of it is, you know, I've... I've I've had everything from partial dislocation of a shoulder to a fracture in my foot to torn meniscus and knee surgery and back spasms and you know just just the gamut. Mm-hmm. But you know, athletes, if you just that's sort of the the real physical like body part of dancing. Um, there's a few like extraordinary people who've never missed a performance because an injury never got in the way of their performance life, but there's very few who never had an injury, mm-hmm. you know, all the way from ankle sprains to a torn calf to whatever it might be. And it's part of the risk of, of working at it like high performance, basically you could say. Sure. Yeah. In, in coming back from injury, how do you find, I guess, physically, obviously there's, there's obvious recovery yeah. that needs to happen, but mentally do you find there's sort of like uh, having to learn to trust your body again in that way after something uh, goes wrong or doesn't work out? Right. Well, early on there's that, um, if you've had a, a pretty serious injury, as you're, as you're coming back, you're worried you're going to set yourself back. But I think in the end you come out more confident and more, because you, you know, this people always say, well, I really learned a lot through that injury. And it's not like, you know, you learned your lesson, you know, you were bad, you hurt yourself. No, it's actually what you did learn, what you learned about your own body specifically and about maybe anatomy in general and um, while you dealt with your injury. So I think most people actually feel like more 
like they have more information and and therefore they're 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 more confident and they're more um, on the level with themselves in a way. Um, in the in the '90s, uh, to move on a bit as well, um, you you started to really focus on solo work and, and yeah. solo performance. Can you tell me a little bit about that that change and sort of starting to focus on on yourself as a dancer and choreographer? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think I had a pre- preconceived notion that, and based on the dance world at the time, that by the time I was in my late 30s, I would be retiring because that was sort of the wisdom of the day. Was by the time you're 40, you've had your dance career. So I was heading toward that time, and I, I was thinking, gee, uh, what would I want to do now? I haven't got much time left, I was thinking. Uh, so there were, first of all, there were choreographers that I, I had always really wanted to work with, and I never had a chance. So I asked several of these people, would they make me a solo? And um, I was thinking it sort of more as the culmination of my career. And I shared a concert with a friend of mine in New York City. We both commissioned solos. And we did a couple of duets on that program. And I just loved being in charge of my creative life. I loved just, you know, thinking who I wanted to work with and gathering the resources around to do it and, and um, or, you know, figuring out how you're going to advertise mm-hmm. it and, you know, the, everything, like right down to like the programs and um I, I loved it, and so then I and then there were still more people I wanted to work with. Anyway, it just took on a life of its own. I wasn't intending to become a solo dancer or anything like that. I really felt like I was coming to a sense of culmination, but I in my career, but it it just created so much appetite. Like each project I did already sort of planted seeds for what I wanted to do next. And so the, the end was just never in sight. It was just always some other fabulous possibility. And um, so then it just turned out I ended up for almost 20 years doing solo work. Then in my very late 50s, I started realizing I, I was no longer interested in doing full solo concerts because I felt like I didn't have the physical range anymore that I felt was really viable for the kind of dances I was doing. And I started inviting other people to perform in my concerts and either teaching them solos I'd performed before or then I started choreographing on them. And once I started choreographing on other people, I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. So that that was another unexpected shift in my dance life. Mm-hmm. I didn't set out to, you know, maybe now I should be choreographing other people. I, I did it kind of spontaneously, and then it turned out to be such an amazing experience for me. I remember going home and saying, I think I can, I, I, I love this. I can't wait for tomorrow. And I, I'd only ever really had that about my own dancing. So... That took off, and now that's really the central focus of my creative life. I still perform occasionally, and I honestly consider myself to be more of a performer now than a dancer. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. But that that culmination never came to to an no, end. No, it just kept it just kept transforming into something else. So in retrospect, I can say, oh, I see my solo career culminated in that last concert, but I didn't know it was my last concert. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started transforming into 
something else. And now I'm at a very, very different place in my, my dance life and in my, my life on earth. And, um, but very, or I could say organic transformations or, um, inevitable almost there's, you know, when I look at it back, I see, yeah, there's a sense of inevitability there. I wanted to ask you about, um, I guess, going off of all of that mm-hmm. as well, the choreographer's trust, this sort of yeah. decade-long project you, you yeah. did that, that collects six of your, your mm-hmm. major dances and mm-hmm. taught them to another generation. Right. Um, can you maybe tell me about, uh, I guess, the genesis of that project and, and why these six dances you felt were the ones you really wanted to, mm-hmm. to pass on? Well, this sort of precedes, yeah, this, so now I'm going to my late 40s when I'm thinking uh, about some some time off in the future when I might not be dancing anymore. And sort of before that time, while I felt like I was still in my body, to be able to teach those dances, because I felt like I made um, a, a few dances that were worthwhile sustaining, regardless if I danced them or not. And or I wanted to find out if they were worthwhile. I'd never seen them. I'd only ever been inside of them. So I, um, I first, and so I started with short, simple dances, and I did it for three years in a row where I basically taught two, two dances, and they got longer and more complicated. Mm-hmm. And I kind of learned how to do it well on the way, because I taught each dance to two people, and they were very, very different. And I recorded all that, and I, I, I recorded footage, film footage of teaching all that. So then when that all culminated in performances every year for these people, and then I gave it to them as a gift, the dance, then I was left with all this performance footage and decided, okay, or this all this in-studio footage of me teaching the dances, I'm going to put these onto DVDs, like simplify them, put them onto DVDs, so other people could learn them through the process of the dancers who learned them directly from me. So now, yeah, these DVDs are floating around in the world, and I was able to publish, I think it's 150 of each booklet DVD set. I don't sell them because they've got a lot of copyright attached to them for the music and the performances of the people, so I give them mm-hmm. to institutions where dancers are training to teachers who can use them with their students, to professional dancers that might use them just for research or might decide they want to perform them. And in the case of a school that wants to perform it or a professional dancer, then I go visit them and I do the last rehearsals with them. But otherwise, they're free to just explore the materials themselves. And it was partly a mechanism for me to let those things go. So I could, I knew I need to let this part of my life go and go on to something else. So I didn't have, I don't want to say the burden of carrying that repertoire, but Mm -hmm. the responsibility of keeping it alive. Like if it's viable, I want to give it away. And if it's not, I just want to step away from it and go on. And it, it was a big moment for me to develop as a choreographer because for the first time I got to step outside and look and see what I made. So I feel that in the wake of that, I made huge progress as a choreographer. And now some of the dances look to me very naive and, um, because I've, 
I, I've also gone forward, but they speak of a certain time in the dance world, and they also carry more than my own ideas and my own dancing, of course. The, the, my teachers and the choreographers that I worked for are all somehow um, linked, linked into those dances. Great. Um, one last question, a um, okay. bit of a weird one. It's sort of a, a question Graham uh, Green would ask a lot of uh, uh, authors, but I decided to try okay. it on a, on a dancer. Um, but uh, do dancers know something special in the way that um, physicists or anthropologists do? Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that aliveness of experience in your body. This is what dancers keep going back to over and over again. And when, you know what? This is linking to your question. Are you a different person when you dance? Uh -huh. Which I never thought of before, but this links absolutely with this other thoroughly original question you just asked, because th that's, they're one and the same thing. There's nothing else like dancing. There's nothing, it's, it's a very, it's like playing an instrument. Like there's nothing else, listening to music, or hearing about music, or looking at a score. No. When you're playing music, you're somewhere with your body in a visceral experience that's sensory, and it's, it's, it's so multifaceted. And this, it's a very unique experience for dancers that almost defies description, except to say that it is so immediate in your physical life. And as I was saying earlier, it links all these other aspects of your personhood from your intellect to your memory, to your intuition, to your imagination, to your, literally your senses. And, and you're alive to your own life, your own body and the world around you in a completely different way. And it's, this is why dancers will do all that physical labor to become a dancer and to, to live out in that world, which is a, it's quite rarefied and it's, um, it, it's a realm of its, of its own experientially. And um, what you can express in that state and what you experience in that state, it's very, it's very unique and it's, um, it's, it's, it's very deep. Great. Becky Baker, thank you very much. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you. Yeah. I Don't Get It is a podcast produced by Poglina, Fonda Mithrush, and Andrew Paul. It was recorded in a blanket fort in the Tall House on Alberta Avenue in Edmonton, Alberta. Our website is idontgetitdance.com. You can follow us on Twitter at I Don't Get It Dance, and you can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Our theme song is Mountain Time by Ghibli. Follow his music and check him out at ghibli.bandcamp.com.